This is Free Proof for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Daniel. And I'm Marshall. And today we're sitting down with Dr. Jennifer Burns. She's an associate professor of history at Stanford University and a research fellow at the Hoover Institution on War, Revolution, and Peace. Dr. Burns graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University with a degree in history, and she received her PhD in history from the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Burns is also a leading expert in Ayn Rand and American conservative movements. And she authored a book on Rand entitled Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right. She is also currently writing a biography on the economist Milton Friedman. Thanks so much for sitting down with us today, Dr. Burns. It is truly great to have you on campus. Yeah, it's great to be here. So you have done some incredible things throughout your life. And I was curious about your decision to pursue a PhD in history. What inspired you to pursue a PhD in history? And why did you decide to focus on American intellectual history and American conservatism? Okay, so I, you know, I, I got to college and I thought I wanted to be a journalist. And so I worked a little bit on the student paper and I sort of got dissatisfied with the level of depth that one could go into. And I also figured out the most important part of the article was the headline. You know, the headline was kind of what got people in. You had all these motivation to like make it really fancy, get people excited. And so I turned away from journalism because I wanted to go deeper. I wanted to look into something, you know, in more depth. And I got a lot of warnings about getting a PhD in American history that I decided I would go for it and I would think of it as I'm going to do this with my early 20s. And if I get a job as a professor, great. If I don't, I'll kind of reboot. So when I came into grad school, I had a whole variety of interests, interest in religious history, interest in political history, but really interest in ideas. And I knew I wanted to read a lot of books and I wanted to read sort of great classics in the field and figure out why they were important and how they fit together. And I was interested in Ayn Rand, but I wasn't really sure if this was a suitable topic for a doctoral dissertation. So, you know, she's kind of didn't have strong reputation in academic circles. But I knew she was important. I said, she's out there. She's a figure in American history. She must be important. And I went into the library. I checked out all the books on Ayn Rand and they were like awful. They were, I mean, they were funny. You know, they were um, a hater. I love her, you know. She slept with my husband. I slept with her. I was like, what's going on here? This is so interesting. And so um, I realized that the book I wanted, which was to learn about Ayn Rand, didn't exist. And so I should write it. And it also happened to coincide with an interest among um, in scholars among the history of conservatism, the history of right wing movements. You know, the, the liberal or the left side of the spectrum was well known, well studied. But the conservative side was not. And historians were beginning to realize this was a mistake. There was something missing. So I figured I could combine this interest I had in this fascinating, you know, understudied figure of Ayn Rand with the scholarly movement to try to understand conservatism because I knew she had a really profound influence on conservatism. I didn't know quite how. And so that became the kind of mission of the doctoral dissertation and then the book. And why do you think she's remained uh, so intellectually and culturally relevant to this day? You know, it's a great question because she has sort of become one for the ages. I think in some ways, the things that people dislike about her are the things that have made her so permanent. So the novels are symbolic. They're unrealistic. Um, they are very deliberately designed to stir your emotions and your hopes. She said she wrote them for young people at the start of their life, thinking about what they could be. She wanted to sort of inspire and uplift. And so I think that piece of her novels really is perennial, thinking particularly of The Fountainhead. And so she wrote it for sort of you know young people starting out, but it's also become very powerful for anybody who's trying to um, you know, find out more who they are 
or develop their sense of personal self. It doesn't have to be that they're young. You know, I would find letters in the archive from people who were getting divorced or changing careers or kind of having a midlife crisis and found this very powerful message about being true to yourself. So I think that is, it's almost a spiritual message that's embedded in her novels. And I think that will, will really be, um, resonate with people um, in a sort of universal way. As a fellow reader, because um, I really like Ayn Rand books as well, I want to know your experience when you first read her books um, and which did you find particularly more insightful? Maybe there's a passage in one of the books that really spoke to you? So it's interesting because the first book I picked up was The Virtue of Selfishness, which I found in a bookstore, and it was made these claims of like a revolutionary new moral philosophy that no one's ever heard before. And, and so I picked it up, but I, I really had trouble kind of making sense of it. And so then I put it back down. And then I read The Fountainhead, and again, I had trouble making sense of it. it. I was like, I know she's talking about something and someone, but I don't quite know what. And so I was really frustrated with it because I also had this, at this point in my life, I had this sort of personal vow that if I start a book, I have to finish it. And so I flogged my way through this whole book, sort of feeling frustrated with it. So, but it, but it stuck in my mind. So I think it really was a curiosity that this book is working on many levels and I don't, I can feel it kind of working within me, but I don't quite know. So I was almost like resisting it. Um, when I went back and started reading her work, I think actually her favorite novel of mine is We the Living, which doesn't get a lot of press and it's her first novel. And it's sort of a, uh, it's based on her family's experience living through the Russian Revolution in the immediate years after the revolution and the sort of fall of a bourgeois family and the different tensions between these two families and sort of how they accommodate to or try to resist the communist regime. So I always tell people to read that one because it has a lot of her her messages, but there it also has a great story, plot and characters. Um, her later work tends to get very heavy handed and it's too much for a lot of readers, but I think We the Living is more accessible. Plus, it's this sort of portrait of, you know, a, a sort of a tragic moment in Russian history. And I think it's very compelling. It's very interesting. And I mean, th those ideals and those values that are portrayed in the book are certainly um, really speak to you in a way that you really get to understand. But I also wanted to ask if there was a particular part of her ideals or her, uh, her idea of objectivism that you personally disagree with. You know, what I think is missing from Rand is it, I mean, it's a beautiful vision of sort of self-actualization, but um, people really are social creatures. You know, we really, we want to be in relationships with other people. We want to care about other people. We want other people to admire us. And so I think there's almost a starkness to her relationships that, you know, sure, maybe we wish we didn't care about what other people thought or we could be totally independent, but we really can't. So I wish that she had been able to show people navigating that in a bit of a more realistic way. So for me, it's not necessarily what's in the books, it's what's not in the books that sort of adds up to an incomplete picture. So I think it's it's an important kind of touchstone along the way, but you know, it, one has to move on further and add other things to your philosophy of life uh, to really, I think, have a full and happy life. And the other thing I realize is Rand really did live by her philosophy and she also died by her philosophy and she was not happy at the end of her life, you know, and so she, she sort of died alone. Um, and so it's not, I think that is not the arc of a life that, you know, I aspire to. Yeah, so this next question is kind of a bit of a transition, but when researching for this interview, I noticed that uh, your upcoming book or upcoming work, it deals with Milton Friedman. And so I was kind of wondering, uh, why did you decide to focus on Milton Friedman? And are there kind of any particularly relevant findings or anecdotes about him that you discovered while researching the book? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, I was trying, I was thinking about writing a sort of bigger history of libertarian ideas or conservative ideas and the Chicago school kind of loomed large. And I started looking into Milton Friedman and I pretty much had the same experience. Like, I just want to read one book to kind of get oriented. And like, there isn't that book, you know, and I'm like, uh oh, maybe I should write it, you know. <laughs> and so, but I wasn't sure because he's an economist and I sort of, at, you know, I had taken some economics in college, but I wasn't an, an ec major. I didn't know how much I could, you know, understand his work or make it legible. So um, I think what's what his, what surprised me was that I came to it thinking about politics and political ideas. Then I got really, really interested in the economic ideas. And so that was sort of a surprise to me how compelling those are. I think what what I would say is Friedman is has been remembered and is sort of talked about today as kind of the ultimate conservative or the ultimate Republican or right winger. But when you go back and look at his ideas, they actually I mean, they have a lot of mixed impulses in them. So, for example, he um, was, you know, an inspiration for um, what we now call universal basic income. He was a huge advocate of that idea in the 1960s. Um, and, you know, he started writing about it in 1938 and it eventually, um, you know, came became a policy proposed by the Nixon administration, didn't succeed. Um, but so I think when you look at him, if you look closely, you know, he's got ideas that speak to both sides of the political spectrum. And there's ways in which, you know, he almost could be seen as a, as inspiration for liberals as much as conservatives. Yeah, kind of building off that, do you think there's kind of any unifying theme in his kind of policy positions or recommendations that kind of unites both the more kind of liberal and more conservative ideas he's espoused? Well, I mean, there's kind of two themes. One is th this idea of using the price system um, to make decisions. And so one of Friedman's innovations, and, and he kind of started it and other scholars followed, was to take um, the sort of price analysis you would apply to a market and say shoes, you know, and spread it out and say, well, we could use this price mechanism um, for national parks or for the post office. Maybe it shouldn't be a subsidized, but it should be a competitively priced and provided service. So he kind of took that and just spread it out into a basic policy mechanism. So in some ways, that is almost like an engineering move. Um, that you know can result in a in a variety of different outcomes that could be favorable um, depend and to different people could be favorable to different parts of the political spectrum or could meet different goals. So that's one piece of it. The other thing I'll you know say more about this uh, tonight at Athenaeum, but is about um, you know freedom. He really eventually decides freedom is sort of the ultimate justification for capitalism, and this becomes very powerful again. Um, both left and right, because Friedman has this kind of anti-establishment energy. And what we tend to forget about the left of the 1960s, it was very anti-establishment, you know, fight the power, fight the man, um, very angry at, you know, the, the machinery of war that was associated with the government. So both the left and the right were anti-government in the 1960s. And over time, this sort of peace treaty was reestablished. And we tend to think of, you know, liberals as more interested in activist government and conservatives as opposed to it. But when you follow Friedman's career, you see that's not always the case. Um, and following up on that, given your experience with these both uh, characters, where do you think are the strongest intersections between Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman? Um, I mean, it has to do, again, so Friedman tended to talk more about freedom and Rand talked more about the individual. Um, but I think there's a way in which that they kind of cross. You know, um, Friedman wanted... Uh, individuals to be free to choose and to make their own kind of economic decisions and personal decisions. Um, and Rand tended to look more inside the individual. What is their sort of psychological or social experience of independence 
or of dependence. And so they, they were working on very different registers. The other thing, though, is Friedman was a more consistent libertarian. I mean, he truly was, you know, I don't care what people do. Um, let's say, go back to universal basic income. Let's give them the money. It does not matter what they do with it. Sure, some of them will use it on things they shouldn't. Maybe they'll use it on drugs or they'll waste it or gamble. I don't care. The, the What I care about is that they have the choice to do it. Now, Rand would never say that. Well, that's immoral, right? She was very, a very uh, judgmental person who really thought, um, yes, I believe in limited government, but um, I want everyone to rationally discover the system of objectivism, and that's really the rational truth, um, and there's not room for dissent. So she had, she was almost like could become a sort of totalitarian libertarian, where Friedman is much more consistent libertarian in terms of like he's, he's very laissez-faire in his uh, judgments on other people. Do you see any sort of libertarian leaders today, whether it's like in the government or in the intellectual field, that might be leading what these big figures uh, led in their lifetimes? You know, I don't know that there's anyone comparable right now. What's interesting is, you know, Rand was quite distanced from, you know, uh, political parties. She did support Barry Goldwater for a time. Um, but she never really represented herself as a member of a political party. Friedman was much more closely aligned with the Democratic, with sorry, the Republican Party, but he never sought office. Um, and so I, when I think of sort of libertarian figures today, I think mostly of sort of minor office holders, um, you know, people in Congress, things like that. And, you know, they're, they're talking about, you know, libertarian principles and ideas, but they're also politicians who have a whole set of other, you know, interests and concerns that they're following. So, um, it doesn't exist in quite the same way. I think there's also been, you know, just different overlap between different libertarian communities and other communities on the right that maybe those those boundaries were more strongly drawn, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And following up on that, do you believe that the current sort of trend between, you talked about the left back then, where it was more anti-establishment, where it was more libertarian in a way, mm -hmm. and right now there's this sort of shift where now the right is more associated with libertarianism. Um, why do you think this shift happened? Well, you know, there's a so in the 60s, it's very clear that the sort of liberal establishment created the Vietnam War. And, you know, so that was a very easy reason to be against the liberal mm -hmm. establishment. Um, I think what's happened now more recently is a, a sort of distrust of expertise and a sense that some of the major institutions, be it the media, the government, have been captured by uh, sort of liberal experts who aren't really experts, but are using these claims to expertise to kind of enshrine their intellectual or cultural dominance. You see some of that, you know, decades ago, but it's become much, much sharper and it's sort of extended to an overall critique of expertise. So, I mean, part of that is simply at this historical moment, we have way more information about all the mistakes that everybody makes because of social media, because of, you know, you can, you can see, you know, a police officer engaging in misconduct. Um, the, you know, corrupt emails between a politician and, you know, whomever they're doing a favor for can be spread all over the internet. So I think there's a disillusionment that's happening and some of it is an internal dynamic to a political movement and some of it is just the moment kind of that we're all living through because of the, the, the new technologies. For sure. Yeah, one kind of final question we had uh, was, I noticed when conducting research for this interview and during this talk that you seem to conduct a lot of research kind of at the intersections of religion, political movements, economics. And so I was wondering what unique value and insights you see in researching the intersections of fields. Uh, this is something CMC kind of really prides itself on. So I was yeah. curious what you thought of that. Yeah, I mean, I think what's been really interesting for me is 
as a historian coming into economics and trying to learn a new field and then also seeing how it's evolved over time historically where I don't think many economists know that. Um, and so I guess one sort of, I have a, a vision to sort of build some type of bridge between these disciplines and have economists thinking more historically and also have historians thinking a bit more, you know, in terms of economics. So, you know, there's a lot of, and most of this is sort of punditry rather than scholarship, but people might say, oh, you know, Friedman, his ideas ushered in this new world or is responsible for this or that. And so I'm like, well, I actually like, let's look at what's going on. Like we, Bretton Woods fell apart. We've got inflation. Um, you know, you've got new technologies that mean you can trade, you know, globally. Like that seems to me more important than this guy writing books, which is sort of a terrible thing to say because I'm an intellectual historian, right? But <laughs> it's just because I want to read the books, but I want to think about how those ideas kind of interface with what's happening on the ground. So my hope would be that, you know, if you can get economists to think historically, they realize, gee, this might not be exactly right, or I might be asking certain questions because of this own particular historical moment. So I think they can step outside their assumptions a bit. And then for historians, I think we get closer to understanding historical change if we look at some of these structural forces that we're really, historians at this moment are not trained to look at those so much. I think there's been a real you know, bifurcation of the fields in the late 70s. And so um, we're kind of telling stories that um, I don't think are as accurate as they could be. And, and then I think that sort of the field of economics sometimes thinks it's got all the answers without realizing that like everyone's been thinking that for the past, you know, 100 years and the field's <laughs> been changing. So, um, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. But thank you very much for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry.